Okay. Good morning to each of you. It's so good to see you this morning. Your beautiful faces. Thank you for worshiping this morning. It is, uh, I don't know, there's something different today, which is, which is in, in, a, in a good way. Uh, so thank you for, for those of you who have come to worship this morning. I want to start uh, a little bit different this morning. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. This morning, when, I, when I'm done reading, I'm going to see, say uh, the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know it's a little bit traditional, but when I'm done saying that, if you could say with me, thanks be to God. We, we need to be thankful that we have scripture readily available to us. That we, we believe in a God who has come to this earth to share with us and make his word known to us. And so we need to give thanks for that. So we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says this, keep reminding God's people of these things, warn them before God against quarrels, uh, warn them against God about quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. I want you to hone in on this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. I don't know if they had gangrene back then, but apparently they did. Among those are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. This is interesting. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with inscription. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves for the latter will be instruments for my special purposes, made holy and useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't do anything with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed and the hope that God will grant them, repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Well, I'm about to share a story with you. This is a pastoral confession. It's not one of my proudest moments, but I seem to have a lot of these moments. And they're fun to share with you because, in some sense, it just lets you know how human I am. In sixth grade, uh, I transitioned to a new school. And many of you know that when you transition to a new school, that... That first impressions may be your last impression. That's what my father-in-law always says. That your first impression may be your last impression. And so I really wanted to make a good impression on my friends at school. And I, I started to know people, and I was getting to know them and making friends. And one day after gym, we were heading into the locker room to change for social studies class. And I don't know if this kid said something to me, or he looked at me funny, or I got dumped that day. Maybe I was just having a bad day. But something about what this kid did rubbed me wrong. And so, again, not my proudest moment. I looked at the kid. 
in front of all my friends and said, how about I come over and beat you up? Now, I said it a little, a little more colorful than that, you know, but that wouldn't be good to say things like that in here. So, but I just said, how about I come over and beat you up? Now, I wasn't expecting this response. But he looked at me and said, that will never happen. And so my friends got really excited and they were looking at me and I'm looking at them and they're like, yeah, come on, you can do it. Go get them. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm getting excited as I'm looking at my friends and I turn around. This dude has squared up in some kung fu karate position, you know. And I'm like, in that minute, I realized that, that something very terrible was about to happen. And I think my friends sensed my, my, my hesitancy and, and they began to call me names that are, that are very unsacred in sacred places like this. And, and so I had no choice but to charge this kid. Now, I charged with everything I had. I tried to tackle him. And apparently he had been studying jujitsu for the last few months. And he, he began to strike me with elbows and kicks and punches that I never knew existed. And the bottom line is I got my rear-end handed to me. I was going to say the B word, but we probably shouldn't say that here either. I got demolished. I got absolutely demolished. And it was so, so embarrassing. I, I tell you this story to tell you this, that... That I've never, I'm not a fighter. Uh, th- that was the only first and last fight I've ever been in my life. But the most embarrassing part of this story is that the person that beat me up was a nerd. <laughs> you talk about going to class, being made fun of for the rest of my life. For being beat up by some karate kid nerd. I mean, we're talking about one of the smartest, dorkiest, pocket protector wearing, wide glass, nerdiest nerdville of nerd you've ever met in your life. And he demolished me. And so this morning, I want to talk, this is a story to introduce you to our, our people today that we're going to be talking about the nerds. Over the last four weeks, as we conclude this back to school series, uh, li- lifelong lessons of learning, uh, we've studied the know-it-alls. The people who, who seem to know everything about life and they mistake their, their knowledge about life for relationships with life. Uh, we talked about the class clowns. The people who were, were very funny and, 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 and very popular, but at the end of the day, we began to uncover that they were very insecure and somewhat shallow. We, we talked about those who were the bummed out brainiacs. The people who were smart enough for school, they just never applied themselves in school. And last week we talked about the so-so shy. Those people that were so fearful in life that they actually missed out on the school experience. And the reason we've been studying these characters is because in many ways uh, we find the same characteristics of people in the church. Now there are very good positive characteristics about these people. But they had a flawed characteristic that kept them from reaching their full potential. And if you remember last week, we said this, that future potential only becomes a present reality when potential is performed. And here's what I have to say this morning. The nerds are a success story. These are, the nerds are the embodied personification of performed potential. These were the students that just did it. You remember a few weeks ago, we said, just do it. These were the students that just did it. And what I loved about their life is that they were smart enough to realize that what they did today was deeply connected to tomorrow. 
that the, that the work and the seeds that they planted and the, the very moments of school where it would somehow reap fruits. I mean, these were the students that became, you know, uh, workers for NASA. These are the students that are operating on emergency tables. These were the students and the nerds who are teaching the future generations. These were the people who made amazing discoveries. And what's interesting, what's interesting about the nerds is they have lived an unusual existence. Let's be honest, the odds were, the, the nerds were really odd. They, they were just weird. They really never made sense to any of us. Uh, they, they were never really popular. They, it seemed like they never had fun. But the reality is why we were out partying and having fun and being the face of the school, the nerds were the ones that actually understood what school was all about. They were the ones that were, were growing and learning and studying because they realized that what we do now has has what's the word I'm looking for? It, it produces fruit in the future. And I think many of us fail to realize that. But what's interesting is nobody knew who the nerds were until graduation day. Many of you can remember this on graduation day. All of a sudden, this, this gal or this guy gets called up to receive this scholarship from, from some grant or from some school. And you're looking at, did that person even go to our school? And next thing you know, you're like, oh, I didn't even know I went to school. I didn't even know their name. But now they have a full scholarship to college. Meanwhile, we get to pay thousands and thousands and thousands. And I think what I want us to understand today is that the nerds, the nerds got it. These were the doers. These were the the ones that seemed to embody everything that the other characters we studied were not. And they realized that what they did today mattered tomorrow. And so we read Timothy this morning, this book of Timothy. And Timothy is faced with the tension. Timothy is faced with this tension of living a normal life or learning to live an unusual existence of being odd. He, he in some senses, is learning what it means to not walk through the narrow gate or the wide gate which leads to destruction. He's learning to find himself out of the flow. And so Paul, who is the writer of this book, begins to write to Timothy. This book of Timothy is actually a letter written to Timothy to encourage him. Now, if you don't know who Paul is, let me just quickly tell you. Paul was this legalist persecutor of Christians who went around slaughtering, killing, chasing, and just demolishing the Christian faith because he felt Judaism was in jeopardy. But then there was this this amazing moment where the God of creation, the sustainer of life, has this unfathomable force of mercy that pierces an impenetrable life and moves them and calls them into a new kind of existence. An existence that we would find somewhat odd. Do you think it would be odd if, if somebody who persecuted you and wanted to cut your head off showed up at your door and said, hey, I want to be one of you today? It would be so odd. And so Paul is writing to Timothy in a jail cell from Rome. And, and Paul, this is actually Paul's last letter before he's martyred for what he believes. And so he's not full of optimism. He's not like gung-ho, let's get him. At the, as he begins to write to Timothy, you begin to sense that, that Paul is, is okay with the fate that's about to be, give him, be given him. Because he has fulfilled the work that God has called him to do. And so he, he writes to begin to encourage Timothy because Timothy is in a battle himself. 
we talk about this flow that he's finding himself in. Paul begins to write to Timothy and says, listen, Timothy, I want you to become the leader of, of, the, of the Christian faith. I want you to begin to speak into the life of the people in Ephesus. But he said, the reality is that I understand that you have a lot of troubles. You have a lot of struggles. And it's easy for you to be patterned by these people in your church. And so Paul writes him to encourage him. You see, Timothy was facing, he was facing a lot of things. There were, there were Jewish legalists who were trying to divide the church. There were false teachers who were teaching things that weren't true. And we'll cover one of those here in a second. And they were dividing the community altogether. There were pagan practices that were being introduced to temple worship. Some of them that are completely unmentionable right now. And then you had Rome who was trying to destroy a movement that was literally changing the face of the world. And Paul says, I'm handing God's truth to you. I'm handing the good news of Christ to you. And you now have to carry this mantle. You have to carry this cross as a representation to say, this is an odd existence that none of you will get, but I want everyone to follow. And so he encourages Timothy. And I love in Timothy, we're introduced to two characters. In verse 18, we are introduced to Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, I kind of think this, that whenever we have names in the story, there's, there's, they're definitely there for a reason. They have significance to the story. The problem with Hymenaeus and Philetus is that they are, in some sense, destroying the story and narrative of God. Paul seems to indicate that they are introducing to the church, you notice that they talked about uh, the resurrection had already come. They were introducing to the church a form of what we call Gnosticism. Now, I understand that maybe some of you have just, I just lost you when I said that word. But hang with me here in this moment. Because you have to understand Gnosticism in order to understand where we're headed today. So Gnosticism is this. It was an elite group of people who had philosophies that that were anti-cosmic and anti-body. Okay, hear me on this. They were anti-world and they were anti-flesh. And and, and Gnostics believe that, that... our human life was sort of a state of drunkenness or blindness or that we were asleep. And that our souls, our inner soul, our spirit was held prisoner to flesh. And that the world we live in was materially bad. And so for them, life was about escaping the flesh and escaping this world and ascending into heaven where the true God lives. Making sense so far? But the question is, how did they get to heaven? You see, for Gnostics, that word gnosis, or, or meaning to know, it was, it was about a knowledge of. For them, it was a spiritual enlightenment or an illumination of some knowledge, that profound knowledge that they had about God. So we actually don't ascend to heaven. We actually don't meet Jesus. But the resurrection happened in this moment where our minds... Uh, moved into this perfect state of being. Am I making sense so far? And so what these two are beginning to teach is that, listen, I know that Jesus resurrected from the dead. I know that Jesus did these things, but resurrection has already happened. You see, if you've said yes in your mind to to Jesus, and you've had this awesome spiritual experience where someday our souls will leave our bodies and we'll go to this place called heaven, uh, then you're in. You're in like Flynn. 
But here's the problem for the Christian. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. That if, if our souls are meant to escape our bodies, the Christians then begin to believe that, hey, if my mind is good, I can do whatever I want in the hood. I'll say that again, because that was kind of funny. You're supposed to laugh there. That if my mind is good, I can do whatever I want in the hood. In other words, that if my mind is with God, then my body can do whatever it wants. And what, what was a problem for the Gnostics was that they believed that everything that we do on this earth has no eternal significance. i got to be honest with you this morning. I think the greatest danger of the church today is that we have bought into a presentless Gnosticism. Here's what I mean by that. that here's what the Christian look, looks like. Somebody introduces you to Jesus. You say the sinner's prayer. Your soul is then saved. And then we come to church every Sunday where we have this emotional high and this wonderful experience. We go home, watch football, eat chili, and then we get to go to heaven. <laughs> Somebody said amen. That's not a good place for amen. <laughs> Some of us have become so accustomed to the idea that a cognizant understanding of Christ creates relationship. But i got to be honest. This is why we live such a boring existence. This is why, as Christians, we live as disembodied, impersonal, monotonous lives, while the rest of the world, we put them to sleep in a state of sin, brokenness, and destruction. Are you with me on this? I know, I know we're, we're, we're covering some difficult stuff, but later in Timothy's gospel, he begins to talk about this. He warns in chapter 3. Paul begins to warn us about this. I love this. You'll find this in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, the people claiming the same name as Christ, listen to this. They have some form of godliness. In other words, uh, they may talk like, dress like, smell like, learn like, and pretend to be devoted followers of Christ. But they will deny its power. They will have some form of godliness, but they will deny its power. In other words, we may look like, eat like, prepare like, but not live like any of those things. I've been captivated by this thought. Denying this power. Jesus says in Matthew that... If we, deny, if we deny Christ before others, if we deny God before others, Jesus will deny us before his Father in heaven. And I don't think denying God is so much about denying Christ in our words, but it's a denial of, and a failure of failing to live out Christ-like love to others. I'm not saying it very well, but, but I think we are failing to live out what Christ has called us to especially if we buy into a Gnosticism that's all about moving this spirit, about having a wonderful spiritual experience, but completely denying the brokenness in the world around us. And so I've been captivated, captivated by this thought. I've got to be honest, church. Uh, God is doing something new in your pastor. I'm, I'm excited about what God is doing, and here's why. I'd be captivated by this thought about harnessing the power of God. What if instead of denying the power of God, we began to harness it? You see, what's beginning to move me is that the same power of God who created the world, the same God who sent his son Jesus into the world to speak with authority and amazing everyone, the, the power of God to, to look at the paralyzed, the broken, and the hurting and give them new life, the power of the God that, that raised his son to new life from dead, 
The very power of God that is raising us from the dead. The power of God that is transforming this world around us. That power can be harnessed in us. You see, we've missed something when it says conceived by the the Holy Spirit. Some translations say we've conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to talk about what the Holy Spirit is and how mystical it is and we don't understand it? I want you to simply talk about harnessing the power of God. I want you to hear this, that you see living and the power of faith is about moving us beyond our fear-ridden capacities and harnessing his powerful capabilities. That's good. I, that's good. That's an amen right there. That I would take notes on myself if I were. Um, let me say that again for those of you who missed it. Living in the power of faith is about moving us beyond our fear-ridden capacities and harnessing his powerful capabilities. Don't, don't you think lives, don't you think our lives would look a bit more interesting if we lived as though we were participating in the redemption of all things? You see, the problem with Gnosticism is that it denies the beauty and the physical that God has created. It denies the resurrection of Christ. It denies the bodily resurrection of Christ. It denies God's justice. It denies God's mercy here on earth. And what it turns into, it's, 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 Putting God aside, putting the gospel aside, putting the world aside, and making sure that my experience at church is awesome. But you see that living in faith is not about escaping this world. It's about changing the world. And I think we should care because God cares. And you see, what we do with ourselves today is deeply connected tomorrow. And so I think this idea of harnessing God's power is working out of what God says he will do with his world. It's a working out of what God says he will do with this world. So, in verse 15, which is really where we're going to sit for the next few minutes, Paul reminds us of something. The work is not about a spiritual ascent. It is about a physical existence. I love this. Notice in 15, he says, Be sure to present yourselves to God as one approved. Interestingly, the root word of approved actually means one is watching. See, I tend to think that we think only God is watching us. But actually, the rest of the world is watching us too. And while we often seek God's approval, the world is watching to see a life lived that proves God's existence. Approvals are never rubber stamped. You see, uh, if you need an approval from a governing body, they put it through a rigorous test in order to give it approval. And so, so Paul not only says, uh, do we have this approval that people are watching you, but you will be put through a test. This idea of worker actually means a, a soldier who has been put in the battlefield and has proven themselves worthy and trustworthy. And so Paul kind of takes us back to what he just said earlier. He says this, he says, join with me in suffering like God, a soldier of Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, that's a hard word to say, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insights to all this. 
what Paul seems to be indicating here is that, think about this. Soldiers are committed to a mission. They are loyal. They are obedient. Athletes go into strict self-discipline and self-denial. The farmers are the one who plants the seeds, but they are patient enough to wait for the fruit. And farmers are also ready to work at any hour. I think Paul wants to tell us today that each will suffer for serious results. You see, I think we have bought into sort of a, uh, a comfy, cushy, comfortable, pew-bound existence in the Christian life. You see, the Christian life is not about getting to heaven, but it's about bringing the purposes of heaven. And if, if we are to stand before God approved, we must stand before others as proof. Thank you. Thanks, gay Lord. If we are to stand before God approved, we must stand before others as proof, which takes grit. It takes determination. We will be tested. But it takes, once again, the harnessing and the power of God to move us into the world to change it. And so Paul continues. I love this. It's not just a worker. But it's a worker who, read it for me now, correctly handles the word of truth. Now I know some of you envision when he says correctly handle the words of truth, dusting off your Bibles every day, making sure you read your scripture and you've got it in your mind so if somebody confronts you, you can battle with them about who God is. And uh, That's not what Paul has in mind here. What's interesting about this word correctly is the imagery that Paul begins to give us is this laying down a pathway or building a road. Correctly building a pathway or building a road. And so the point of this is that the part of working, part of patience, obedience, discipline, selflessness, living a life filled with Christ is that we begin to give a pathway for people not only to see who Christ is, but to experience who Christ is. And part of creating a path for people is learning to live an unusual kind of an existence. Like, we must be the nerds. We must be completely odd and weird. Now, I have to be honest this morning. Uh, we Nazarenes do that quite well. Only the Baptists are laughing. <laughs> uh, yeah, i got to be honest. In some sense, Nazarenes are a bit weird. Uh, we are a bit weird. It's okay. Um, But I've got to be honest, when our church started back in 1907, six, I forget my history class, somewhere in the early 1900s, I think we were a people that correctly handled the truth. That we were a people who were so odd and so weird that when we stood before God, we stood approved. And not only did we stand approved before God, but we stood as proof of God. Here's what I mean. I think we've lost some of our nerdiness, and we need to regain our nerdiness as a church. I didn't say dorkiness, I said nerdiness. <laughs> I love it when people, here's what you have to understand about our church. It started in L.A., a place where there were addicts, alcoholics, poor people, marginalized people. And the rest of the churches were saying, uh, ministry is messy in L.A. Let's move to suburban life where it's a little more perfect and we've got the white picket fence and everything's perfect. 
churches were leaving L.A. And the Nazarene church said, oh, oh not us. Here's what's going to make us different. Here's where we're going to begin to lay down the path to perfection, wholeness, life, and shalom. We are going to stay committed to these people because nobody else is. I love when people ask me, what is a Nazarene? And I tell them this, that we are trying to become a kind of people who extract the good out of others who others say no good could come out of. That's what Nazareth is all about. Nothing good could come out of Nazareth. And we are trying to become a kind of people who see the good in others. We begin to pull that out. And we are, once again, correctly handling truth. We are laying down the foundation and the pathway for people not only to see Christ, but begin to experience His goodness, His mercy, His love, a joy, a newfound kind of life, and, and quite frankly, wholeness. Thank you. That's exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. Maybe I'm the only one excited today. You see, I'm convinced that what made us so odd in the early 1900s is that we were deeply aware that what we did today was connected to tomorrow. You see, I believe, and I preach this at every funeral. So if you come to funerals and you're saying, he just preached the end of the same message, it's true because I think the end is important. That every act of compassion... Every act of forgiveness, every act of love. In other words, let me say this. Every building road that we build that that is done in peace and not hatred and violence. Every road that we build, correctly handling the word of truth, that says, I'm sorry in the midst of the world that holds grudges. Every every path that we build that, that expresses God's love and kindness is a weird kind of existence on this earth. And all those things are done, not because we're going to escape these bodies and get to go to heaven, but because we believe that in every act of beauty, in every act of creating music and art, those have eternal significance. That those will be carried over into God's new world. And somehow, uniquely, we are participating in the redemption and the restoration of lives and making all things new. This is what I love about a church. As weird as we are, I think we've lost our nerdiness. I want to get back to it. That's why we do what we do. I'm, I'm going to brag on you this morning, but first I need to tell you what you need to know. I think part of being a nerd is that we must be the odd in the ordinary. That we must go against the flow. We must be the odd and the ordinary. And listen, I hate the language of winning souls because it's not about winning souls or weirding people out, but it's about welcoming people in. You see, I, I think that an odd existence or a unique existence isn't unpleasant for people, but it is perfectly appealing. That how we live our lives is so captivating that people are drawn into it and they want to be part of it. So I think we must be odd. We must be nerds and we must capture that nerdiness once again. Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) Great movie, by the way. Some of you didn't think I knew that movie, huh? Can I be honest, church? I I I think we're becoming the odd in the ordinary. Can I give you credit this morning? Your pastor has kind of taken you through the ringer over the last year. 
I've made lots of changes. We've made lots of changes. Our leadership team has made lots of changes. And some of you, a good majority of you, have done quite well in the midst of those changes. But the one that sticks out to me the most is this, is that as we are learning to recapture our nerdiness and our oddness in this world, you have begun to embody a new kind of existence. And what I mean by that is this, is that we believe that the gospel is for everybody. I don't care if you're addicted. I don't care if you're on drugs. I don't care if you're homeless. I don't care if you're abusive. I don't care about any of those things. God meets you in those moments, and he loves you, and he cares for you. And he has a different plan for you. And what I love about our church is over the last year, we have looked at people, and instead of saying, oh, you're not welcome here, we don't let those people kind of, you know, we don't let those people in here. We have become a church that allows people from all different backgrounds, all different problems, and all different cultures and races to be part of this church. And you, church, have been accepting and loving of those people. What I love about our church is that we are becoming, and this is what is odd about us, we are a no-strings-attached kind of church. We live in a world where somebody wants something from you all the time, that if I give you this, you must give me that, but not our church. I gotta be honest, I'm proud to be the pastor of Juliet First. That's right, I am. I'm proud to be church. Because we are becoming a no strings attached kind of community. Here's what I mean. Perfect example today. Those of you wearing community shirts, those of you who'll be joining us on this journey after church, we are going into the community today to say, what is it we can do for you that you can't do for yourself? We know that you might not come to our church. We, mo- we know that you may not believe in Christ. But we, we have to, I love this line, I always say this. We have to speak to the whole before we get to the soul. That we have to meet the need. We have to meet the need first before we can actually speak life into somebody. And so that's where we're starting. We're just going to start meeting people's needs. One of the other things I love is that we have a hope closet that gives away clothes for free. And I'm not talking like really junky clothes. I'm talking like pretty amazing clothes. And I love the vision that people can come in and they can get clothes for their children. And they can go home and clothe their kids for this winter and for for school. And and you know how much clothing matters in the material world of America, right? Man, think, think about the dignity and the pride and the honor that it gives these kids as they go to school. I love it. Yeah, you can give a hand for that. That's good. I like that. I think about people like Linda Rosenquist, who who physically has some disabilities that, that, that keeps her from, from getting out every once in a while. And I love what she said to me. She said, Pastor, I want to be a part of what we're doing. I just don't know physically if I can do it. And I said, I, I, I need you to call people at the hospital. The irony is the next day I'm up at the hospital, the very next day I'm at the hospital visiting someone, and the phone rings. And they pick up the phone, and then they say, Hey, Linda just called me. That's right. That's right. You see... What's odd is that she took time out of her day to make a phone call to somebody to simply say, you are loved, you are cared for by your church, and we are praying for you to get healthy. I think what's odd is recently over this last week, we have some friends who, who aren't necessarily maybe Christians, but somebody from our church who is a friend with them has in essence become a faithful presence in their life. Every night, going up to the hospital and praying for these people. Asking, can I pray for you? Can I share the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ to you? In a way that's not offensive or weird. But in a way that begins to harness the power of God. And you talk about a faithful presence at the hospital in a time of need. That, my friends, is odd. 
Because the reality is, is most of us are so busy, we could care less that our friends are dying near us. We're so busy with our jobs and our work that we're just not even worried about it. That's a new kind of existence. That's a unique existence. I love the fact that we have people who, who provide meals out of their own pocket for newcomers. I love that we have people who invest in times when it's most inconvenient. Church, I've got to be honest. We've made a lot of changes, and I know that it's been a painful process, right? We are the workers. We are being tested. But the good news is this. The face of our church is changing. Not just the faces that are coming here, but the, but the way in which we go out to the world around us. And I'm excited about that. I mean, maybe you're not, but I am. I'm excited about that. I get motivated by the fact that we're going to be examples of Christ's love every minute of every day of our lives. So here's what we do with it. How do we become odd in the ordinary? What I find interesting about Jesus, I'm ending with this. Jesus was odd. People were expecting one thing and they got another, but Jesus was so holy, and yet the most unholy were wholly attracted to him. Our God was so holy that the most unholy were wholly attracted to him. Think about that. When people think about you being holy, what do they think of? Do they think of piousness? Low lives? I don't know. You see, holiness is about the embracing and loving of our others. And so I guess the question that you need to ask yourself this is this. And this is our final homework assignment. Do I have a pen? Maybe I don't. Right next to the notebook. Yeah, thanks. You guys can see better than I can. Hey, week five. Here we are. All right. Oh, my goodness. Good thing it's the last week. (laughs) It's okay, Bill. (laughs) Uh, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself this question. Thanks, Bill. yourself this question this week. How are you odd? How are you odd in the ordinary? How are you learning to live the unexpected? You see, the world expects that you will get up on Sunday and you will go to church. The world expects that you will be standoffish to people that aren't like you. The world expects that perhaps you'll hold a sign and tell people how much you hate them. But we are Nazarenes. Most of all, we are Christians. And we live an odd existence. Amen.